You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you from our Vox Media headquarters in New York City. Very excited to have Brian Curtis on from The Ringer. We're going to go over his entire bio, but I think of him as someone I fanboy out about a lot. And I've been trying to get him here for weeks, <laughs> months, years. Here he is. Welcome, Brian. I'm so difficult to get. No, yeah, I'm, I, I'm thrilled. This is this is the big time. This is two white guys talking about media. Oh, my gosh. This what a rare, how rare in media <laughs> to hear this kind of conversation. Um, Brian is a really one of my favorite writers. Writes about the media business, writes about sports, sports media. Um, now has a podcast about media, yes. which is now twice a week. Mm-hmm. So kind of get off my block, Brian, but welcome. <laughs> There's plenty of room, right? I think so. On there, this block? It's a weird, there's a very finite number of people who want to hear insidery media stuff, but there's a lot of people who want to talk about it. It's a weird market. That's right. And I think there's a there's also a market for people who want to hear outsidery media stuff, which is to say that not not that we don't work in the media. Yeah. But in the one I do with David Shoemaker, I don't I don't we're not interviewing newsmakers. No, but you guys are in you're in the belly of the beast. We'll, we'll go we'll go over your lineage. Um it's just it is funny. There is um I think pretty much everyone who is in media wants to host their own media podcast or read about <laughs> other people in media. So we're happy to fill that niche. That's right. That's right. So you what do you have a title? Do we care? Editor large. Okay. Means yeah, it's, a nice fit. it's kind of a nice old Time Inc. style, you know, 1970s title. Yeah, Bill, S- Bill Simmons, The Ringer, formerly at Bill Simmons, Grantland. Prior to that, I was going to be your resume. Started off as an intern slash fact checker, I'm assuming, at New Republic. That's right. In That's between right. Play Magazine for the Times. Mm-hmm. Slate. Slate. Which was kind of New Republic online at the time. And then, yeah, and then off to Play. There Daily was a beast for Tina Brown. And I think then, you're, you're a couple years younger than me, but I think— had you been doing your career a few years earlier, you would have been on a pretty straightforward path up into glossy magazinedom. That's probably that, right. I mean, yeah, you ideally. Been, your, your name would have been splashed across GQ or Vanity Fair four or five times a, a, a year, right? I, would have, I mean, I think that would have been the goal. Is that was the aspiration? That kind of arty author photo in the front of Vanity Fair. Yeah. You know, where my you know, your hobbies. Yeah, exactly. And kind of, you know, my thinning hair is kind of combed in such a way and I'm kind of giving a rakish look at the camera. Sure. Yeah. Was that the plan? Yeah, it was the plan. I thought it was the plan. But um, then the world just completely changed. And one of my favorite things, you know, whenever I think about what I've done, and I don't know if it's anything special, but I haven't really worked for a publication other than the New Republic that existed when I was in high school. 
So, Whoa. you know, I, I grew up in, pretty heady. Right, in the world of newspapers and magazines yeah. thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't I be lucky enough to work for XYZ? And then by the time I actually got to a place where I could do something like that, Went away. the world had changed. It was completely changed. Yeah, I was talking to Chuck Klosterman on this show. We have, we're going to have everyone from the Ringer Extended <laughs> Universe come through eventually. And we were talking about being in the generation that grew up without the internet. Um, and that seems like a big deal. You, you, I think you're describing a similar version of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. This will air sometime between now and a couple weeks, which means we're not going to talk about the actual debates that you've been commentating on. But you were in town commentating about the debates. That's right. Live That's in right. Brooklyn. Um, as a guy who thinks about media and politics, I'm curious, other than these super obvious go-to-my-website stuff and watching Joe Biden sort of stumble around his URL— do you think the coverage of of the campaign to date, and let's assume that the world doesn't end by the time this podcast uh, actually drops, do you think it has changed significantly from 10-ish years ago? It seems like, in, from my mind, other than velocity, it's it's the same coverage. That's interesting. Um, and I, But there's a lot more of it that's accessible to your normal human being yes. than there was 10 and certainly 20 years ago. It feels wised up to me a lot even with newspapers, because I felt, you know, one of the frustrations in, in working at places like the New Republican Slate was the whole idea was we're wised-up journalism. And newspapers, while they do a great job and they uncover facts and they do all kinds of things, they're essentially have, they're prisoners of this newspaper style. We have to give you this straight, inverted triangle, inverted pyramid, and we can't really tell you what the insiders think and say. Yeah, and that that expressed itself in a lot of ways. I mean, one, they couldn't really write think pieces exactly. Mm-hmm. They couldn't call lies a lie, something we're now experiencing with yep. Trump in different ways. I feel that all the, for all the criticism the Times gets, and they still get buried for that kind of stuff, newspapers are much more wised up now. Also, we see their writers on Twitter, so we know they're wised up because they yep. can tweet in this very knowing way and kind of position their pieces in a very different way. Do you think the audiences want that, or do you think that's what the journalists and it's, it's, it's a conversation among media people like the one we were just talking about having? Journalists definitely want it. Yeah. Because they, they don't they don't want to seem like stiffs. Right. They don't Suckers. Wanna, yeah, they don't want to seem like they're writing in a tuxedo. They want to seem like swinging dudes. And women, but as long as I've written about the media, both in the sports one and then now looking at the rest of it a little bit on the podcast, I've never been convinced the audience knows what it wants in any discernible way. They they have ideas, they'll have big they want to, you know, they want to know about politics, they want to know about sports, they want coverage of the candidates, they want coverage of the real issues. Mm-hmm. And here I'm making giant air quotes, all that kind of stuff. But do they actually, if you just went to a person and say, What do you want from the New York Times? I don't think you'd get a real you know, really clear, concise answer to that question. I think they encounter journalism and they decide whether they like it or not. And if they like it, they say, give me more like that. But then you give them something completely different. Oh, I like that too. Yeah. And there's also, right. And as you're saying, right, there's a, if you were, if you're watching TV, right, if you're watching CNN, then that's your idea of how that stuff works. And you won't think any differently. At the beginning of this campaign cycle, we had Jay Rosen come in and said, once again, we should stop covering the horse race. Uh, and every every four years, there's a discussion about whether we're going to stop covering the horse race and whether we should fundamentally change the way we, we cover this. And it just seems that we shouldn't even have that discussion because it's never going to change. No. Um, in part because I think the audience actually does want to know who's ahead and who's behind in a really obvious way. And also, it, it's almost impossible not to write that. Sure. I mean, who's going who's gonna to run away from that story? And also, what is the horse race? The horse race is the campaign for president? Yeah. Right. I mean, what are we doing here? So we just, you know, all we should have are dispassionate stories about 
issue positions, yes. issue, and also biographies. Which, by the way, you can find at Vox.com. We take that stuff very seriously. Very seriously. I don't mean that in a flippant no, way, but they, very, that's what they do. Yeah, some very high-fiber stuff over there. Yeah. And we want, are we okay with profile, personality profiles of the candidates? Maybe. Does that does that fit outside the horse Maybe. race? Maybe, yeah. Um, you know, then— But so, the idea is, yeah, the American people need to—they care about very specific issues, and the reason they don't—they're not getting it is not because they don't want it. It's because we're not giving it to them. Hmm. I just don't know. I mean, I, and I think— there's no real sports analog to that, right? Nobody, nobody's saying, gosh, can you guys stop covering NBA free agency? Nobody, nobody says that exactly. A little bit, right? Like, you won't, we don't bother covering the score of what happened in the game, right? That's done, so we have to find something else to write about. Sure, but I, but I think sports, if there's, any, if there's anything that sports has told us that would apply to politics right now, you can cover analytics. You can have Kirk Goldsberry drawing you maps of the, of the court, and you can have Zach Lowe, and you can do that. And you can cover the other stuff. The bigger stuff, the who's up, who's down, you know, it, are the are the Lakers going to make the playoffs this year kind of stuff. And you can do it all at the same time. Actually, the media is pretty good at doing all this stuff at the same time. The sports politics uh, conflation, right, seems super obvious, and then a lot of us bemoan it, too, occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it seems right, right? Is, and is, is, is it an accident? You're talking about cable television. Cable television, any any version of this, right? You can you can swap in free agency coverage, or the TikTok, how this deal came about. Um, you, you can look at the sourcing and like, oh, that all just came from the Houston Rockets GM, um, <laughs> or this is from the Harris campaign. Did you stumble into covering sports and politics at the same time? Um, I started out doing politics because I didn't think sports was going to be important enough. All I wanted to do was a kid was be a sports writer, and then I would have these periodic. Grew up in Texas. Grew up in Texas. Uh, which was a very good career to grow up in Texas. No, nobody. If you said I want to be a sports writer, that made total sense. If you said I want to be a literary novelist, everybody would look at you like, "What is your problem? You got to leave." What's wrong with you? Yeah. But I, I had these moments where I would think, "Oh, sports is not important enough, and I should really be doing something that's worthwhile." So that's why I started out writing about politics at the beginning. And then at times I've kind of gone back to that and done it for a year or two, or done something else. And then I've eventually decided, "No, no, no, you belong in the." in the sports section of life. Is that, is that, so you describe yourself as a sports writer? Sure, proudly. A media writer? No, I'm okay with that. Writing about that, the sounds, media. That sounds less glamorous, but sure. You have a very, in my mind, you have a pretty specific niche. I mean, you do a bunch of great things, which is great. But you spend a lot of time writing about literally, not even so much the business of sports writing, but just sort of the craft and how it works. What is it about writing about, like, uh, the NBA beat reporters in, <laughs> in Louisiana, in uh, New Orleans for the, the Pelicans um, that appeals to you as a subject. It seems like a very, very narrow uh, it, subject. It se- yeah, it seems on paper to be very, very narrow. But they turn out to be really interesting people. And True. they turn out to be doing very, very hard jobs. And I think the thing about sports writers, when you write about, or sports media people generally, when I write about them, as the guy writing about yeah. the people doing the thing, is that those are really aspirational jobs for a lot of people. And even Still. When, yeah. And even 2019. When, I think so. Yeah. And even when I write something like, hey, there's this guy in New Orleans who has a full-time day job, and then he's covering the Pelicans for a major newspaper, yeah. now the only newspaper in New Orleans, at night, there are millions of people who go, oh, I wish I were that guy. I wish I could leave my day job and go be an NBA beat writer. That sounds really 
glamorous. Yeah. Now, it's kind of unglamorous by, you know, having a job and maintaining your sanity standards. But I think there's a lot of people. So I think whenever I write about those stories, people want to do those those jobs. And I think probably I also kind of, you know, as a kid, I think of myself as a kid thinking, boy, boy, wouldn't it be fun? You grew up watching sports. At some point yeah. early on, you have the, you, you, you come to terms with the fact that you're probably not going to get paid to be a professional athlete. But it kind of <laughs> seems early. like you could be the guy in the booth. Yep. Or the guy in the locker room talking to those people sure. about them. Yeah, there's an old thing that, like, everybody watching a football game thinks they could call plays better than the guy calling the plays, uh, call the penalties better than the referee, and then call the game better than the announcer. Right. Those are the three things you are absolutely you certain. You probably don't think you can throw the ball better. Or no, the ball. no, but you think you can do those three things. But, yeah, no, there is something aspirational about it. And I've just always been interested in those people. I thought you were going to go with, hey, here's the thing, because here's the way I, I would imagine you pitching it at a meeting. This tells you a larger story about media or journalism or society, right? The reason there are only three people um, covering—this is a year ago—the uh, Pelicans, and one of them has a full-time job doing something else, is because the local news economy has collapsed. Um, the reason it's important to talk about the art of sidling. You want to explain <laughs> what sidling is? Yeah, that's when you, if you cover basketball, especially the NBA— this is the way you re develop relationships with stars is you walk up to them as they're walking somewhere else and you get a few private moments away from the rest of the press. Yeah. That's sidling. So the reason it's important to write about sidling, I was imagining you were going to say, is because this tells you about access and the, and the way celebrity works and the way um, stars can now pick who they want to talk to and, and determine whether or not they want to talk to anyone at all. Um, Maybe, maybe you don't need me to help you pitch those stories. <laughs> what you're doing is you're writing the think piece. Yeah. Which is all great and all true and all part of this. And in my pitch email, if I if we did super formal pitch emails mm -hmm. at the ringer, that would probably be paragraph two and three, why this is important. But that's to me background music. The most interesting thing is thing. I want to talk to the guy about how you work your way next to the NBA player. The process. Yeah. And yeah. I want to know what he's like. I want to know what the writer's like. And I know what the NBA player's like. And I want to know how you ask that question, how you develop that relationship. That's where it starts because that's what's honestly compelling for the reader. I think is. Editors and writers, we take these think piece classes that are informal, where every piece has to be, what. but what does this tell us about the state of the media? I don't know. I have no problem with that. But See, I want, people, I you, know want what, you, you know, to come you know to what? most of my meetings and help me out on Slack because I, this is what's interesting to me is how does the thing work, right? The people are asking me, what's your view on this? I'm like, well, I can give you a view, but I really want to just show you how the thing works. When you open the door, if you're yeah. in the room, what does it look like? And to me, that's really fucking fascinating. Absolutely. Ideas are really interesting. And I and I come from, you know, Ideaville in a lot of ways of yeah. journalism. But people are also interesting. And, you know, working journalists are interesting. And I think if you write about them in, in such a way, they can be interesting on their own. But that stuff, again, is in the background, but it's, but it's background music. They're at least interesting to us. If you are interested in this conversation and we're 14 minutes into it, hang on for a minute maybe or so. Don't press the fast-forward button because you need to hear this message from an important sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
Back here with Brian Curtis, great writer, great podcaster. When did you imagine you were going to become a podcaster? Uh, the moment the first podcast started. Yeah, I don't imagine right I'm away. a podcaster now. No, I mean, I mean, I, I just never. You're thought really about good it. at it. Well, that's, you're very nice to say that. Um, and it seems natural to you. If that's your opinion, I, I just want it to is say. my opinion. <laughs> it I, sounds as if this is something you have sort of stepped into and just happened. It doesn't feel natural. I'm always interested in like the cadences announcers use because I just you know, it's part of my job is listening to yeah. sports announcers, listening to Joe Buck on how he calls a game on Sunday. So some of that's fun just to play with as you're going through it. Mm-hmm. But to me, it feels unlike being a writer that it's just it's it's a runaway train. And you know we'll have a good 45 minute session, me and Shoemaker together, and then I'll what did I just say? What came out of my mouth? Yeah. Whereas with an article where you're kind of polishing it and polishing it and rewriting it and tweaking it, you pretty much know exactly what you said at the end of it. It's not sure. a lot of stray sentences in there where you're like, boy, did I write that? And doing this conversation is different than a conversation you would have if you were talking to someone for a story and you were eventually going to pull out four quotes or whatever it is, and that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you get it. Totally, totally different form. When, when did, so you, you, I encountered you as a writer and then I saw you dipping into the, Grantland Ringer podcast universe, uh, and then at some point got a show. Um, what did, when did someone say, hey, this is a thing that you should be doing on a regular basis? If memory serves, I think Bill Simmons was saying it for a while. Yeah. And we are just kind of trying to figure out what would, I, what would well, how could we do it? What would be interesting? And, you know, honestly, I felt there were so many, at this point, there's not a ton of, there's not a huge ton of media podcasts, but there are a lot of media podcasts mm-hmm. where people, yourself included, uh, were talking to big newsmakers mm-hmm. and having these interviews with big newsmakers. And I thought, okay, I think that maybe is taken care of. What could we do? So Shoemaker and I have been friends since we were 14 years old. It's David Shoemaker. David Shoemaker. And I thought, well, what if we start with our relationship and then the show grows out from there? It's almost like, you know, when I interview guys like Eric Rideholm as a producer of Pardon the Interruption mm-hmm. on ESPN with Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon talking to each other. His whole premise is start with a real relationship and then evolve that into a show. Instead of what we do on television so much, just start with a show and evolve it into a relationship. You, used, put, to have, you used to play sports. You write about sports. Yeah. Let's put you guys together. Now we're talk. situational friends on TV. Yeah. So with, with Shoemaker, again, having a guy that I just know forever, it's like we know how to talk to each other. We spent way too much time talking about at bars, into the early hours of the morning. So why don't we just pick a topic, in this case media, which I was writing about anyway, and let's go from there. That is what I like the most about podcasting is sort of the relaxed, potentially relaxed nature <laughs> of it, the the notion that you're listening to two people who have a relationship talk. Um, so yeah, I, don't, I don't need to shine you up anymore. It's very good. Um, very what, nice. what has surprised you about figuring out how to do that? Uh, there's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't think about all that hard until unless I had to talk about it. So, you know, when it's E. Jean Carroll or, you know, some of the kind of media stuff we encounter with the campaign with, you know, Biden and the segregation and stuff like that. That's all stuff that I would read about or watch a segment about or even listen to somebody else talk about. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about it. You really have to sort of, you know, you have to sit there and stop and read a lot and think about it. And you can't be the guy at the bar with a half-formed opinion. I mean, you could. Yeah, and people do, but don't want to. Yeah. You want, to, say, you want to kind of have an idea of what you're talking about. How much, uh, this is this is very crafty, but but how much time are you spending on these things? You're doing now two a week? It really depends. And it, if, if it's more sports-oriented, I feel like I'm in terra firma. You can wake up and talk. I can, well, yeah, or at least, you know, it's it's a shorter process. But but yeah, a lot of time, a lot of time just, just reading everything. I want to circle back to something we talked about and you talk about a lot, um, this notion of 
athletes usually is what you're talking about, but, but it can be all kinds of people who are famous, um, and their relationship to journalists and, and, and how that has changed. For years and years and years, we've been talking about the idea that you could sort of go, you could stop mediating that discussion. You could go right from the star to the audience, um, and it didn't really happen, and now I think it is happening. Especially with the NBA. Yeah. Like what, about, what about the NBA makes it? More more apt for that. I think those guys are just more well-known as personalities. It's the nature of the sport. They're not wearing helmets. You know, there's only five five starters. Right, so you know who they are. You know who they are. There's five starters on the floor at a time. NBA players just seem more adept at social media just as a, as a group than baseball players, right? So, yes, we have we have this thing where whenever someone is a free agent, they will inevitably have a straight-to-YouTube documentary about their free agent process. We will live it with them. I, I don't honestly don't find much of that stuff all that interesting. No, once you once you start going, oh, the Jimmy Butler discussion is not. It's definitely not worth five episodes of however long this <laughs> no. is going to go. <laughs> should have been pitched as maybe a one episode. Hey, he's talking to his friends. What do you think I should go? I don't know, Jimmy. Wherever you want to go. And like, all right, click. Yeah, and maybe it's maybe it's just me being pro journalist because I think we that's where I start. But. I'm, I'd just much rather read the great profile or the great insidery piece, the TikTok, as you said, about that guy's free agency than the, you know, my media guys produce this documentary thing. Right. And the flip side is, well, why not just have that guy say what happened? And I think part of the reason is that guy probably isn't that good about explaining it. And also there's things that you want to know that he doesn't want to tell you. There's that. You know, and also just like picking out ideas as, as, you, as you talk about the, the the think piece part of it too. How is this different than the last free agency thing? You know, how does this fit into the player empowerment era of the NBA that we're talking about? What the player may not want to come out and say. I mean, that's why I find so funny about these things is NBA players we now think are controlling the action in the NBA yeah. in a way that we haven't seen in pro sports, maybe ever, certainly in a long time. And but then they come out to their to the, when they do their official video or they do their opening press conference. They can't, can't come out and say that. Mm-hmm. They can't come say, by the way, I engin- I've been engineering this whole thing for six months. But as a writer, you can say that and you can paint that picture. And to me, that's often more interesting than what the player would come up with on his own. Yeah, you had a good bit the well, a couple of weeks ago where you were make, gently ribbing Anthony Davis. Formerly the Pelicans, <laughs> yeah. now at the Lakers. And he's like, oh, it's amazing that this thing just happened. Like, what kismet? <laughs> I've been traded to the biggest franchise in the NBA. Um, you did this. You did this. There, so there is still, you know, apparently if you go to LeBron James's sanctum, it's full of his Sports Illustrated covers, right? And when he would make a move, he would, for a while, I think that's changed now, he would get a Sports Illustrated writer to, to write the story with him. Do you think for a certain kind of player and a certain kind of outlet is still going to be meaningful, or do you think that is pretty much going away? Probably generally going away. But here's the other thing about LeBron James is he did that, but he's also a guy who feeds his beat writers. The guys who are there every single day, mm-hmm. and one woman at, at present, who are there every single day doing the grubby work of covering everything he does. He has relationships with those people. He had the relationships in Cleveland. It's not just an L.A. or Miami thing. He had them in Cleveland. And after a game, they could ask him questions formally, but then they could also sidle up to him and get stuff. And he was very diligent about doing that. So he saw a value in it. Now, but, and, but And also— self-documents himself via House of Highlights. I realize that every time he has a taco on Tuesday, he makes a video of it. There's that, yeah. But it's kind of a new media, old media thing. He's doing the, I own this stuff. I'm going to put this out. I'm going to, you know, super serve my fans. But then he's also doing the, I'm talking to the beat writers all the time. So if we're in a world where it doesn't matter what happened in the game last night, because we know, and increasingly the players are bypassing the media to tell stories, 
where does that leave sort of traditional sports media outlets? What is their role going to be in, in a couple years? It's a crisis. I don't know if it's, you know, we could, you, we could argue whether it's a crisis of economics. It is certainly on some levels in certain places and newspapers and things like that. But it's a, it's a crisis for the sports writer themselves because I think their question is, what do I do now? You know, and a lot of them, if I, if I can't, 40 years ago, my newspaper granted me the power that you had to talk to me. Yep. Now, you could be mad at me, but the franchise needed me. It I'm going to ask you a question in the locker room. You will answer. I'm going to yeah. ask you a question in the press conference. You will answer. That's right. And, and you know, your and your franchise needed me in the paper every day to sell tickets. Right? It was that. that was it was that simple. Yep. It was that simple. And and that isn't that clearly isn't the case anymore, especially at, at, at newspapers. Now, maybe we could argue with ESPN. It is important enough, but at a lot of places, it isn't. I think it's a crisis. The sports writer goes, "What am I good for? What do I do?" Um, but and not just writers, right? We're just talking about anyone who's in that business, right? Sure. But the TV people, again, there's more of a symbiotic relationship. I'm paying the rights fee, so you have to come and do the post-game interview, or unless you're Greg Popovich, you have to humor me with a few questions mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. They're, they're still pretty much in in a very 70s, 80s way. I do think. you think that's also just that they appreciate TV more because the, the time is well, That's part of it. That's part of it. But I would also argue I don't think we're to the point where the players don't need us full stop. Or the players are ignoring the writers, full stop. I think if you walked into any NBA locker room on a given night, and again, it would be maybe different in some big markets, but if you walked in there with a notepad, I think you'd get a lot. And if you followed the beat writers around, I think you would see that they're getting a lot. And it's not, the door hasn't been shut quite yet. What do you make of The Athletic? You've talked about it a bunch. Um, they just put out numbers and said we've got a half a million subscribers. I remember when they initially announced it, I thought, well, that's not going to work. Media, we're saturated with sports media. Um, anyone who really wants hardcore stuff is already getting it. Um, this can't possibly work. I'm still a little confused about the model, but in theory, they've got half a million people paying them monthly for sports content. I'm where you are on the model. I still don't, but I'm I'm willing to, to. I mean, they've walked me through it, so I get it intellectually, and but <laughs> sure. I get that people pay for stuff they value. It just seems like it'd be very, very hard to give someone something they weren't able to get somewhere else, even if you're a hardcore name your team fan. Artistically, if that's ever a word we should use to describe sports writing, I think it's been really interesting because it's a lot of people who were. Uh, I don't think it's too strong to say prisoners of newspapers. Uh, you know, your beat writer has to f- blog 20 times a day. And all of a sudden they go to The Athletic and they have to write three times a week. Mm-hmm. And there are writers who I d- didn't think could write like they, they are doing now at The Athletic. They're you think, writing. You think for, it has improved their craft or has allowed them to do a better version of their craft? Yeah, I mean, they may have been good all along, but they're writing, they're, they're writing even better. And they're taking advantage of the fact that they, can, they don't have to work at the same crazy rate that their newspaper in this kind of weird death spiral days of newspapers was making them work. And so there's been a lot of it. And I've seen that. It's really hard to get a handle on it because it's so big. You know, I see people say, oh, I don't like the athletic. Well, you don't like you all reading? 500 people yeah. or whatever it is like that. Okay. <laughs> but I like a lot of it. And it's interesting that the that your conclusion is like they're doing a sort of better form of the craft because usually when writers talk about craft, we, we take it very seriously. And then usually our bosses or our bosses' bosses go, this is a bunch of bullshit. You guys need to generate this many page views or whatever the number is. Um, and you're too full of yourselves. In theory, the athletic folks are, are being comp based on their subscribers. So if they're writing stuff that people don't value, don't literally want to pay for, doesn't matter whether the craft is cool, right? They're, it doesn't matter if they win an award. Um, so if the conclusion is actually, if you write these really beautiful pieces and well thought through leads, et cetera, 
people respond to that, that's pretty encouraging. Yeah, you'll yeah, I, and I think that is that is kind of encouraging. And just yeah, it's just valuing different things. And again, I think newspapers had gotten to this point where it was just like we just, we just have to just you know, the the crank has to keep churning. You know, just we just got to crank this thing. And and they said let's just slow down a little bit. And it's interesting. And again, it's also, I think, the, the underrated part of it is, and I say this as a, as a Dallas area sports fan, as that's where I grew up and mm-hmm. what, I still, the, what I still read, is there were a lot of beats that were not competitive. They either were not competitive at all or they were functionally not very competitive. One guy had it. Yeah, and now they've made it competitive in a lot of places. And that has, that's raised a lot of boats because even the newspaper goes, uh-oh, you know, we, now we got to work harder. That guy has to work harder. And the, because the athletic guy, often a younger person, often a person with something to prove this is their first big gig, makes them work. And that's a really interesting dynamic. I've seen that in a lot of places. Let's go deeper into sports media. We mentioned free agency. Um, <laughs> again, I'm, it's a, my mind is a little warped because I spend a lot of time with Ringer content. And I, sometimes you reference the fact that there's a sort of Ringer POV, which is really Bill's POV, right, um, that's very basketball-obsessed. But the idea that, like, basketball free agency was something that a lot of people would be interested in and would be sort of checking in on throughout the day or at least a couple-day period, um, and people would have an interest in deep dives. Is there something that has changed that has made that more attractive to people or just just, they literally couldn't get the content and now they can? It's shocking to me. It's shocking as a as a sports fan of the '80s and '90s that the NBA and NBA offseason would be the main event of the whole sports world, yeah. not just the Ringer sports world, but the whole sports world in such a way. Two things have happened. One is that basketball just got bigger, and it's bigger with a younger generation that you know is reading Twitter. Mm-hmm. So that just becomes its own kind of self sustaining thing. But I think the other really is the creation of this NBA insider character, uh, personified by Adrian Wojnarowski. Yep. Though there are other people, he's done for NBA News what I think Nikki Fink did for Hollywood News, which is Nikki Fink would write these pieces about studio chieftains and functionaries you'd never heard of right. and say, aha, shake up inside Paramount. Somebody you've never heard of is getting fired uh, for, you know, bidding on a script right. you've never heard and of. And there's a very small circle of people who actually care about that because their job is involved. Yes. And then there's a much larger group that really shouldn't care. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't care about box office. And they right. shouldn't care about what the player is making or any of that. But they're interested. And, be, and, it be, and was, they were interested, I think, at least partially because it seemed like a journalist was infiltrating this kingdom uh-huh. and was yeah. bringing you something. Aha. Uh-huh. And, and you, that journalist became this kind of quasi-heroic character. And I think that's what Woj has done for the NBA. And I just, I just can't stress enough how that has made this, the whole idea. Because if you watch NBA free agency, it's all very self-conscious. There's a Woj bomb coming. Yeah. And it hardly matters what it is. Sometimes it's huge news. Sometimes it's really small news. You but monitor a, this much but more. he did it. So that's Yeah, big. so he created it, right? Um, or at least, I think, revved up the machine. Sure, rev- but yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, and you, so you monitor this much more closely than I do, but it seems like there are now multiple Woj's, right? There's Shams, who's from, uh, where does he work at? Yahoo? That's right. Right. Um, or The I, Athletic, sorry. Okay, correct. And it's, especially, the, maybe I was just watching more of it this time around, it seems like actually some of the, the uh, artifice has been stripped away. I'm like, oh, 
Well, if you thought about it, you, obviously all the information is coming from the agents and or <laughs> a handful of executives. Now they're just saying, look, this is coming from this agent. They are named in the tweet. And it seems a lot less interesting. If, if we keep going down that path and, and that sort funny, of the though? myth of the guy in the air shaft seeking out this stuff as opposed to just like checking his phone because the agent sent him a text saying, here's the deal. Isn't that funny? Yeah. How it, it seems more exciting if we say sources mm-hmm. than, said, than, than if we name the source. It was like Watergate. You know, if you said Mark Felt at the very beginning, it would have been less interesting that there's this secret man manipulating the government. And by the way, to the whole NBA thing, we should say famous players are changing teams more often now. Right. So that fuels this whole thing. It wouldn't be as interesting if LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and these guys weren't moving around. And, and, and by the way, as we said earlier, engineering their own moves. And so this is not something where you can say, oh, let's replicate this in baseball or football or out of sports and and take that model of obsessive insiderdom um, with sort of almost artificial sort of fake news, not fake, fake, but, you know. The, the idea of the, the trade deadline is sort of an arbitrary thing. Right? Sure. Um, and can we blow up other media businesses by adding that same playbook? Football comes closest. Yeah. But again, it doesn't, you know, it, Tom Brady isn't changing teams. So it only gets you so far. You know, it's— Even though football is a much, much more popular sport. Even though football is a much more popular sport. That, but that's the funny thing. You know, basketball isn't as big as football yet. But basketball transactions are <laughs> somehow bigger than football transactions. It's just a, it's a, it's a strange moment. But again, I think, you know, and Adam Schefter is a, is, is very, as, as much an insider as Woj in the NFL. Yeah. But I just think there's something about the fact that basketball stars are changing teams now. Schefter's the one who went to the, uh, the, the sports betting, who went to the, who, who, one of the sports action you think of Darren Ravel? Darren Ravel, yeah. He went over the sport. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's yeah, who right. covers just the business of sports. <laughs> That's right. And I was talking to someone who works there. I said, yeah, you, you walk down the street with this guy, he gets mobbed. He's a <laughs> he's, famous he's person. huge, yeah. So maybe maybe this is in our future. Yeah, I am. Uh, I would, anybody who would mob either one of us on the street, I, I fear for that person. I really do. Periodically, I meet someone who says, oh, I listen to your stuff, which is very cool. Yeah. Usually, though, my in-laws go, Wait, you get paid to do what? What do you do? <laughs> or I'll tell them I talk to someone marginally famous. I'm like, really? You, you got to talk to them? I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, impressive. It's not the most glamorous beat in the world. All right. Two white guys talking about their jobs. We'll continue in one minute. Be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Back here with the great Brian Curtis, the modest Brian Curtis. Oh my gosh! We talked about the athletic. Um, let's have our our requisite ESPN discussion. You're a professional ESPN watcher. I'm a sometimes ESPN watcher. The story of Jimmy Pitaro replacing John Skipper and Jimmy slash Disney's line is to stay out of politics. We don't want to touch any of that. Do you think that's sustainable? Do you think it's sustainable for sports to remain free of politics, or at least free of Trump, because that's probably what people mean, right, um, for the next two to six years? Well, he's created this fire escape, which is was essentially one of the points that Dan Levitard, who was the ESPN radio host, made when he had this eruption 
the other week, criticizing ESPN policy. I said, wait a second. Why can I not talk about Trump's send her back bit when if a football player talks about it, then I can talk about mm-hmm. it? So why do we need the athlete, as he put it, to be the shield for us to talk about it? Um, we're going to find out if it's sustainable. I, I suspect— Here's the thing. I know lots of people at ESPN who would be, who are and would be very disturbed by lots of things that Donald Trump's going to say between now and November 2020. Yep. They also really like working for ESPN. Yes. They really like those jobs. Those are well. Those are those are good paying jobs, and it's really visible. And that's kind of the the top of the sports media food chain. And they want to keep those jobs. And I think they're gonna they're gonna swallow a lot and go okay. So we have to decide the the moral question of whether you sh- if you have a platform you should say something about abhorrent things that are being happening that are happening in your your country. I, just a practical business question. I get that there's a per- certain that the fear of talking about politics is you're going to turn off a segment of your audience and or advertisers. Usually you're probably worried about turning off right leaning folks. Doesn't matter though. In this case, but the whole premise of sports journalism beyond the here's the score and beyond the here's the woge bomb is. Let's have an animated conversation about a topic. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much usually a sort of fake animation, right? <laughs> We're going to get fake upset about this play, this player. This Zeke trade. Elliott holding out from Dallas Cowboys yeah. sharing camp. And we're going to talk about it ad nauseum. And this is which is the exact same thing you do if you're doing political talk. Um, I don't know. Why wouldn't you want to have a Colin Kaepernick or Trump conversation um, if you're programming ESPN or any other big network that one has a ton of time to fill and two knows that this stuff is engaging to people. That I think was essentially the John Skipper policy, which is look, John Skipper's ESPN was 98, 99% about sports, but Skipper harbored this thing. And I know you've talked to him and yep. Taro, by the way, um, about these issues. But one thing he thought was there is this part of our soul or our existence where we have to do the right thing. And yeah, no, mo- for him, it was a moral thing. Yeah, there, there was are, a moral component. And there are mo- but I think it was also moral going into artistic thing. That if I'm hiring really interesting people like Lebetard who have thoughts right. about all kinds of things, and they would occasionally stray into that, then we'll just live with it. And we'll, and we'll deal with it. I'd rather, I'm sure he would have rather those people be talking about the latest trade in the NBA. But, you know, I just think what Pataro has done is essentially the most convenient thing, which is you can't talk about it. Right, I yeah, what I was pushing on was the idea that there would be a commercial benefit to having people talk about things that are controversial in politics. You think on ESPN? On ESPN. Because yeah. it would, because it would, they'd be more animated? You yeah, know, they'd I'm, be more I'm upset about— They'd be more animated? Yeah, and also I'm, I care a lot about Colin Kaepernick one way or the other, so I do—I'm more interested in watching this discussion than I am you, whether you guys want to talk about Zeke Elliott's holdup. You may be right. I, I guess their commercial thing is that if we— allow that, where does it end? And then it eventually tips over into the people get mad business. Again, that doesn't really, that doesn't concern me all that much because I'm not worried about ESPN making money. But I guess that's what they've determined in this case. Why do do you think uh, Fox has made not very much headway going after ESPN? You know, it's, that's a great question. I think one is they, they started from virtually zero. Right. So but in terms of they have don't have the games. They but ESPN the, didn't have the games when they started off. They had guys talking and they had sports scores and they had Australian rules football. And it took a decade plus to really rev up into the an ESPN we recognize. Mm-hmm. Where those were, you know, it was really the ni- you know, late eighties, early nineties, where the ESPN we know become starts to become this thing, this behemoth, rather than something we like to watch late at night if we're bored. Um, you know, Fox started from zero and then they didn't have the games. 
right? They was it took them a while to get Big Ten put Big Ten football on there. Now they're gonna, you know, they got wrestling on Big Fox. They're yep. apparently gonna have wrestling shoulder programming on FS1. I, I think that's really hard when you don't start with any of that stuff. And you have to be like, because that's why people are watching this stuff. And we, we, we say this all the time. It's live rights. We want, we want the live programming. And right. We'll but that's only a couple hours of, of the, tw- right? The rest of it is, let's talk about the thing that you either watch on our network or someone else's network. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, but I just think when, I think when you're starting from zero, that's the thing. I mean, you could argue maybe that creatively they haven't figured out, you know, a must watch. And I probably, probably agree with that too. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and writing about it. You've written well about it. The idea that a digital player will come in and buy significant sports rights. There's a vested interest in all the leagues playing up this idea. Oh, <laughs> sure. yeah. You know, Apple's coming. Netflix is coming. Meaning CBS, NBC, ABC, you guys got to pay up. But let's say it did happen. Is there any reason to think that uh, uh, – name your digital player, Apple, Amazon, whoever, um, wouldn't be able to do sports correctly? Meaning that would, the shows wouldn't look very good? The shows wouldn't look good or they wouldn't get how it works. I'm just assuming you just buy all the people who make TV for CBS and bring them over to Apple or whomever. Yeah, the most recent example we have of this is Fox buying the NFL rights in 1993. Right. They had no experience. They had never put sports on television before. They had an they Australian fig- guy running it. Yeah, with an Australian guy running it, and they figured it out, and it looked great. And it quickly became you know, the industry standard that other people were trying to catch up with yeah. pretty quickly. I don't, I don't think they'd have a problem with that. I feel that we're on, especially with the NFL, because we're kind of talking about the NFL mm-hmm. we're now two years out, but we're, we're already positioned. Direct ticket is up now, maybe. Is now, right. But then the big Sunday packages yep. are a couple years out. We're already positioning. I feel this is going to be the last one where it's really about television, network television and sports. You know, I don't, I think it's, I think we're one cycle too early to really give a chuck. Now, could they create a little mini package for Amazon or YouTube, whatever? Sure. Yep. The but, NFL is very good at slicing but, that stuff up. But were we going to give the weekly rights to the Dallas Cowboys? Are we going to take that from, from Fox to a digital property? I don't believe that. I one, believe it's too early. One of the things you do hear people talking about, again, the NBA leans into this a lot, is what we're going to do, regardless of who's streaming, is we're going to, or who's, dis, who's airing or streaming this, we're going to start displaying this stuff in a different way because we need a younger audience. They're watching Twitch. They're at the Fortnite. I went to the Fortnite World Cup with my my kids. Wow. Um, and we need to engage that audience by showing them more stuff, whether it's weird graphics. Did you watch, uh, I think it was during the finals. It was. During that, that weird Nolan feed. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Which looked like a well, well, it was, it was obviously an experiment. Um, what do you think about that idea that, that, that sports needs to be tarted up or changed or supercharged or just a lot more graphics thrown to engage an audience? I think the old model still has a lot of juice left in it. I really do. Here's the game. Check it out. Yeah. And, but, you know, one of the things ESPN did in that was as soon as, you know, uh, Steph Curry was shooting a three from a particular spot in the court, they would put the percentage of him hitting that three mm-hmm. above his head. I think I'd take that tomorrow for most NBA games. And I think everybody would fuss about it for a couple of minutes and mm-hmm. then you go, this is really cool. Right, because some of the stuff, right? Here's the here's the 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 first down marker, mm-hmm. right? That was a new idea, however many years ago. But that's those pretty slow and incremental changes. The first down line. Yeah. Uh, you could also say the shot tracer and at golf, which mm-hmm. Fox brought, brings into golf, and everybody goes, "You can't do that at the U.S. Open," and now it's at the Masters. You know, the most sacred of sports broadcasts. So I think I think the public will tolerate. I'd say a couple of things. I think the model is going to stay pretty similar, but I think the public always tolerates a little more technology than 
we think they will. Mm-hmm. So you can just start to add these things. I don't think percentages are bad. You know, key matchups, you know, yep. those kind of things. I mean, those are that to me is is fun. Did you watch the the Katie Nolan? I, I watched one one game. Yes, oh, a full game. I think so. We yeah. should. I think probably no one has watched this except the two of us for the <laughs> most part. But they tried to sort of twitchify the game, and then. Um, so you'd see some of those graphics, and then which maybe wasn't the worst thing. I think the, the the awkward thing was what would it be like if you could watch four people awkwardly talk about the game periodically? And that to me is actually the frame that's harder. That's going to be hard to tear down, which is play by play announcer analyst than what's on the television screen because. People have tried to do this periodically through history. Let's let's just get rid of this and have two people talking during a have game. Have the fans. Or, or have the fans do com- – right, to have this kind of, you know, yeah. director's commentary, but it's from the guy watching at home or something yeah. like that. It's really hard, and you do lose a lot of stage directions because play-by-play announcers to me are actually really, really important. And Speaking that sound, extemporaneously is a very difficult thing to do in extended periods of time. It's really hard, but also just with the audience, you know, saying, this is a foul on so-and-so. He has this many fouls. This is what's happening here. This is what just happened half a second after it happens. Taking away that narration is is tough. And I kind of think that will be the last thing to go of what we understand as like your 1975 football broadcast. It was funny during the Fortnite World Cup that I watched. They have announcers, and the action is going so fast that I can't follow it with my eyes. <laughs> and then the announcers who are of that world, like one of them was Ninja, the famous Fortnite player apparently, um, they can't speak fast enough to explain what's going on. And it almost seems like they should just drop. That, there, that is an attempt to sort of placate me or have, you know, but my kids certainly don't need you couldn't even hear the announcers anyway. They're just they're they're used to just watching unanimate, unnarrated uh, YouTube footage. But well, what if we went to Syracuse and found the next Mike Breen and said, "But you just have to speak this fast. You have to speak in Fortnite at Fortnite speed, not NBA yeah. speed." Can well, you we know create that announcer? I don't know if you've watched this stuff, but actually, the the what, the most of the the this footage that I've watched is the players themselves are narrating while they play. That's that's and they're usually like they occupy like the bottom right hand corner and they show the screen and the kids the kids seem to get that. it's like NFL it's like the NFL films broadcast where you can hear the players you know in the middle of the game yeah you know, we'd watch the Super Bowl and then you hear what you know Brett Favre said when he threw the touchdown by the way the 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 sort of reemergence of NFL films as a as a media brand so right <laughs> there's there's Heart Knocks which I love and now there's they've branched out to Amazon so they do. Comes out in the summer. Yeah, the one just came out. From the previous all or nothing from the previous season. Yeah, and they're about teams I don't care about who've finished a season I don't care about. I will still watch all of it. And it's not, it's, and and Hard Knocks at one point was was great because it had this game show element to like who's going to get cut. Yes. And they've kind of moved away from that a little bit. Um, but I'll still watch it. And I I watched an entire string of uh, shows about Man City. Mm hmm. Um, which again, I do not care about at all, and was even hard. Like it was harder for me to understand. And again, I could find out what had happened in the season. Um, but that's that sort of fake verite style that they've pioneered. Really good. It goes back to what I said earlier about the aspirational thing. We want to be that mole in the locker room. Yeah. We want to be the person who's standing in there. We want, you know, we love sports, and then we want to be the person behind the, the curtain. They give you just enough that you think you're behind the yeah. curtain. Obviously, when the actual thing. Although, that said, even one of those NFL series that I watched on Amazon was about the Rams um, during the Jeff Fishery season. <laughs> Again, did wow, not care exciting, about them. Yeah. Well, and they, they, they're ginning up like it's really tough for them because they had to move from St. Louis, and now they're playing in a in a field that isn't really ready, and so it's, it's not, not dramatic at all, except they show Jeff Fisher being fired on camera. 
Which is incredible. It's amazing. And that and that to me, the 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 firing, you know, because that that had already become a thing on ESPN Black Monday, the Monday after the NFL yeah. season, wearing all the coat and then Adam Schefter sitting there on his uh Blackberry reporting coach firings. And now we get to see it. I mean, how many people do you do you get to see fired, not on the apprentice Mm-mm. in American life? No. Nobody. Yeah. You know, and there's by no, the way, you really don't want to. I, I, no, of course you don't. Like when Esquire has a change of regime, wait, that's not that's not on television. Uh, and so there's that's an sure, Instagram. Not sure anybody would watch that anyway. But there's something to that. It's awful, but it's but it's you know obviously people like it. I kind of like it too. What non-ringer media organization are you most intrigued by right now? In the in the quote unquote new media field or no, anywhere? Just pick. I don't know. I, I, you know, my, First my thought, New York thought. Times, you know, subscription, and if you listen to me on the podcast, that's what I talk about the most. Yeah, you're deep in it because I just feel that that's, you know, in a way that's just that is still the standard, you know. And I and I subscribe to the print paper too. I don't know if you still do. No, but um, I'm obsessed with the print newspaper too, just because it takes me so many places, and because it works as like anti, you know, anti Twitter. You know, I'm reading about, oh, here's a, you know, here's a sexual harassment scandal in Poland that I wouldn't be reading about. Because no one's tweeting about it. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it just, it seems like, you know, especially the first couple of pages, the international news often just seems like, huh, how did this not get into my feed? How did none of this get into my feed? And so I just get, I don't know, it seems like more interesting. Are you consuming all the time spinoff products, the, the daily, and there's now, this is their second or third TV show? The weekly, the, yeah. I watched the first weekly, yeah, and thought it was really good. Very earnest, not, yeah. It was very earnest, yeah. And it had that Times speak kind of thing, yeah. Similar I said to that the to some of the Times, and they said, "Well, how else would we present it? Do you think it should be funny?" <laughs> they were quite offended when I said, that. "Yeah, it's it's old gray lady as translated into yeah. reality television, but it's good. It's good, but you don't you, the paper is enough for you." You don't need to go. Well, no, I, I like that stuff, too. Yeah, you'll go for I'm it. A, I like a good media critic. I'm trying to watch it all or, or, you know, at least watch what I can. Sure. Yeah, the Times is in their really amazing business story, too, right? Because you could be a serious person 10 years ago and say, I think the New York Times is going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And sure. There was a real concern, and they had to take a high-interest loan and sell off the building. And now they just seem, you know, colossus. Yeah, and invigorated in the fact that just just the hires they make on the political side. All around. I Someone just came in this building the other day, and I was talking to them about their job, which was not the New York Times. And on the way out, they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to the Times. Yeah. And I'm like, of course you are. You're really good. If you didn't really just get hire. hired by The Athletic, you got hired by The Times. Yeah. It's one of the two right now, you and I, you and I being the two holdouts in this. Yeah. I don't know what that says about No, us. I know. <laughs> Probably not, really not much. All right. If you go to the Times, will you tell me first so I can break the news? Yeah, we'll you, you're going to do it right. on your own Twitter account. No, no. We'll do it right here on this podcast. Have you, have you heard me complain about how journalists now have a I'm quitting tweet and then an I'm hired tweet? Yeah. And these are two separate things. LeBron had one announcement, but journalists need two. LeBron didn't have an I'm leaving Cleveland and then I'm going to Miami. But journalists need to have discrete announcements. I heard you say that, and then I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about colleagues I know who've done that. I don't think it's the journalists who are doing it. I think it's their employer wants the bump. The, the, new, the, the, new, the employer. new employer says, I want your hire to be separate from you leaving. Oh, so they want their own announcement. You're that saying, that wait, is my hunch. Based wait, on so the, if I'm going to the New York Times, you say the New York Times doesn't want to, Brian is leaving his old thing. To, to get into the same tweet as Brian is going to. That the is thing. my semi I don't believe that. barely educated no, hunch. No way. You think it's pure ego? Yes. Great. Well, we're talking I about journalists. Of course you. it's pure I, ego. I have a new job, but I can't tell you. 
I mean, that's that's just what is that besides ego? I don't know. Some comms people who want to maybe they can't announce the new job, but you can just wait. Yeah, we're not going to miss you for four or five days. <laughs> you just, I'm sure you were off on vacation somewhere. We're really not. Brian, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you came. Thank I'm you. Glad so you were much still for employed me. by the Ringer. I am still employed by Vox Media, very happily so. Um, <laughs> other people who work at Vox Media help make this podcast awesome. Jelani in the booth by himself is one of my producers. So is Golda Arthur. Joel Robbie edits it and makes it sound that much better. Um, the people who work on the ad side bring ads to you so you can hear this show for free. One last thing I'm supposed to tell you. Tell someone else about this show. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this fine show. We'll see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.